May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Speaking to someone earlier this week, I was reminded of a quote from Mark Twain, I think it was, who said, When I was 17, I thought my father was the most ignorant man in the entire world. But by the time I was 21, I was amazed at how much he had learned. It's funny, you know, you think of the way that we sort of view life differently after a little bit of experience and a little bit more and a little bit more. Um, I know a father who tells his children and they're on the cusp of puberty, you know, that your brain's not going to function right for a number of years. Um, but we love you. We'll be here at the end. You know, we'll see you on the other side of this wild uh, adolescent experience. Which brings me to the axiom of the morning that we all know so all too well, that youth is completely wasted on the young, isn't it? You know, we're born into this world with this, this sort of gray matter up here that functions like a, like a regular human brain. You know, it, you can take data and it puts, you know, it, it, it can take an incredible amount of data in turn and, and, and like pump it out and use it and, and find all sorts of ways to, um, to function in life. But, but here's the thing. Knowledge is not the same thing as wisdom. Knowledge is not the same thing as wisdom. Knowledge is the building block, or at least one of the building blocks to wisdom, but it's not the same thing. We hope, of course, that um, children and grandchildren, nieces and nephews, everybody that's you know, important in our, our lives as little ones, we, we hope that they'll, they'll get plugged into the right sort of places where the right data goes in, you know, and that they begin to function more and more in, in a higher level and, and begin to develop you know, the way that humans ought to. We pump a lot of time and financial resources and all sorts of things into making sure that, that young ones sort of grow up in a, a place where it's safe and there's plenty of food and they have clothing and, and all the things that we can so that their learning environment will be the most profitable. In fact, if you think about what some people would say are the marks of the sort of good life in the Western world, what would they be? I mean, what would be the ideal sort of life in the Western world? And we think about things like, you know, plenty of food and shelter and low crime and beautiful scenery, temperate climate like we have right here in Northeast Ohio, especially in January, um, all sorts of, uh, you know, the good things. But, but chief among those things on the list in the good life would be good schools. We need good schools. We want good schools. These are, this, is a, this is a high value. It, when you go out um, to purchase a home, it's not long before the, the, the real estate agent tells you about the schools in the neighborhood. And it matters even if you don't have children in school. Because if you ever want to sell that place, you might sell it to somebody who does. So you want to know. We need good schools. These are a value in our society. And so we tax people. We do whatever we can. We, we have all sorts of, of organizations. We have government agencies that look after nothing but the education of young children. At the state level, at the national level, we have nonprofit organizations that advocate for young people and their education. We view education as a human right. And so around the world where education is denied a person because of their color of their skin or their sex or whatever, we, we, we rally against that and say no, education is a basic human right. And I haven't even begun to t- touch on things like vocational education or private education or university education. I'm just talking about the very basic parts of learning. 
I thought about this and how ironic it is that the most, well, the person that most of us would say was one of the wisest Americans to ever live. If you, if you took a moment, don't blurt it out loud, you can if you want to, but if you took a moment and just in your mind sort of went through your list of the wisest Americans who ever lived, you think Abraham Lincoln might be on that list of wisest Americans ever? I mean, he's got to be in the top five, right? Would you be surprised to learn that Lincoln, in his entire life, was actually only in a classroom setting from his birth to his death, 18 months in total? Only 18 months he actually spent in a classroom. These were when, in the year of his sixth birthday, his seventh birthday, his eleventh birthday, his 13th birthday, and his 15th birthday. Those years, total time in a classroom, 18 months. And when it was that he went to study for the bar for the state of Illinois, it wasn't at the University of Illinois Law School. He was in a small little room on top of a general store where he had Blackwell's commentaries on the laws of the the nation of England. And he would read through the commentaries, take notes, underline stuff, And he took the bar exam having prepared himself by reading Blackstone's commentaries. When President Lincoln was speaking, given the eulogy at Henry Clay's funeral, Mr. Clay also likewise had a limited education uh, like Lincoln. Here's what Lincoln said. Mr. Clay's lack of an education, an early education, teaches us at least one profitable lesson. It teaches us that in this country, one can scarcely be so poor but that if he will, he can acquire sufficient education to get through the world respectably. That's what Lincoln said. If he will, he can. Now, we worry about a lot of things in terms of education. We worry about the quality of teachers. We worry about textbooks. We worry about technology or the right computers and all that sort of thing. And I suppose those are good to worry about. But sometime, at some point, we have to look at, say, well, is there a lack of motivation to learn? Is the lack of learning in the country not so much about the lack of resources, but the lack of motivation? Which brings me to another real irony. And that is the age in which we live is perhaps the richest in terms of information access. In terms of human history, I'm not talking about just in the terms of, of, of a last century. I mean, in all of human history, never has so much information been so readily available at your fingertips. You can't even tell a good story anymore because people are Googling it to see if the, is that really right? I mean, they pull out their phones, don't they? That can't possibly be true. And they're looking it up. Yes, it is true. Just take my word for it. I wouldn't tell you a lie. We live with so much information and yet, never before have there perhaps been so many unlearned people in the world. So many people who are, who are unprepared, really, for life. But as bad as that is, the situation is actually worse. Because even among the learned, we have substituted knowledge for wisdom. We've made this huge confusion where we think that knowledge equals wisdom. So the more knowledge one uh, you know, obtains, we believe the wiser she or he becomes. But that is not at all the case. You know, our, our academies, all of our learning academies, from the youngest to the oldest, have made this same error. They believe that if you could just teach people mathematics and science and literature and art, that they'll become wise. 
and that that wisdom will produce goodness and morality. And yet it hasn't happened, has it? Take the last hundred years. The most learned, the most educated, and the most violent hundred years, perhaps, in human history. For all our learning, we have not become qualitatively better human beings. Yes, we need schools, we need teachers, we need all of those sorts of things. We need, we need universities and professors. We need the Internet. <laughs> Thank God for Wikipedia, right? We can get the information quickly. Google. I think Google knows what I'm saying right now, and they're already on me, so we have to hide in a minute. We need all of these things, but there is something even more important than knowledge, and that is what Jesus is speaking about to his closest friends in Matthew's Gospel. He takes a little excursion. He and his friends, the, uh, the 13 of them, head off to this town called Caesarea Philippi. It's 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, and it is, as we, far as we know, the furthest Jesus has ever traveled away from his home in the Gospels. Way up in this city, Caesarea Philippi, named um, by uh, Philip the Tetrarch for himself and for Caesar Augustus, hence Caesarea Philippi. And it was known as the center for the worship of the Greek god Pan. Pan was sort of a god of nature, and he was also the god of of fear. The word panic, for instance, comes from the worship of the god Pan. And in Caesarea Philippi, in the center of town, there's this huge limestone rock. And in this rock, there's this massive cave, and out of the cave flows a spring. And it was believed that Pan was born there. And so people by the hundreds and thousands would come to Caesarea Philippi. They would offer sacrifices to the god Pan, and they would, they would you know, worship there in that area. Before Pan, though, it was a worship center for the god Baal. In the, perhaps you remember in the Old Testament studies about the god Baal, who was also a god sort of of nature and thunder, and, and, and so people would come to worship. There were 14 different temples in the area of Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus takes his friends and he goes there. All these pagans are gathering, all of them worshiping, none of them Jewish. It was also a place where Caesar was worshipped. And so it's emperor worship, it's Baal worship, it's it's the worship of the Greek god Pan, and it was believed to be the source of the River Jordan. All of these things sort of coming in the same place, nature and life and authority and power. Now, Matthew does not tell us that Jesus was actually at this site, but it would be hard for us to imagine him going to Caesarea Philippi and not being there. It was the most notable um, shrine, the most notable place in the city. Why else go there? So I want you to imagine Jesus with his friends, all Jewish, and there's all these pagan people all the way around them, and they're all worshiping and doing this, and Jesus looks at his friends and he says to them, who do people say that I am? Well, you know the, sto- you know the answers, right? You, you heard the lesson. It was read. Well, some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or maybe one of the prophets. Good answers. All thoroughly Jewish. What about among the pagans, I wonder? You're nothing. You're, you're nothing. You mean nothing to them. You're not even a good philosopher. You're nobody. Among, among the Jews, maybe you're a notable uh, person, an Old Testament type person. But among the, the pagans, you're nothing. And then Simon, Simon Peter, this, this fisherman... This um, career fisherman, his father was a fisherman before him, his brother's a fisherman. He's probably, almost certainly, uneducated. 
can't read or write. There are two letters in the New Testament that bear his name, and they're obviously written by different people, which means that he had different secretaries that he would employ to write for him. So he would speak, they would copy down what he was saying. One better secretary than the other, if you just want my opinion on it, but that's aside the point. So Simon Peter, this uneducated um, fisherman, says to Jesus, when he asks that question, who do people say that I am? He says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now here's where it gets a little tricky because no one in Jesus' world would have thought the Messiah is divine. The Messiah was supposed to be a man, not God. And, and what Peter is saying is Jesus is divine being. He is God incarnate, God in the flesh. And nobody would have thought that. Nobody would have thought that. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Blessed are you. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't learn this in a classroom. But it has been revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. There is wisdom. Peter has wisdom. How did he get this wisdom? Well, by traveling around with Jesus, you say. Well, of course, that's part of it. By watching him perform miracles, you say. Absolutely. By seeing him day in and day out in his behavior and modeling that. Yes, sure. But God has done something special in Peter's heart that has changed the way he sees the world. It has taken the whole world and turned it upside down. And he sees things that he otherwise might not have. Not to answer a question on the test, but because the means of grace have transformed him into a different kind of human being. And so you say, okay, this is all well and good, but where does that get us? So what? What do we do with this? Do we put a premium on ignorance and just wait for people to, you know, kind of come to some special revelation? No. No, 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 no. A thousand times no. You know, I'm, I'm committed to this education thing. I spent a long, long time in university classrooms. A, a decade, you know, a long time. And so, no, I don't think that's it at all. But we do, we do ourselves great harm if we begin to confuse wisdom with knowledge. Wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom is, a, is a, a deep inner awareness of what God is doing in the world. It's taking the building blocks of knowledge and making sense out of them in a way that, makes, that, that responds to the grace of God in the world. Knowledge brings about arrogance. Even biblical knowledge brings about arrogance. Oh, well, let me tell you. We can, we can just, it brings pride. But wisdom, when it applies knowledge, brings about humility. It changes the kind of people that we are. And so, what am I saying? I'm saying in a world where everyone is an expert, whether it's science or politics or economy or art or literature or whatever, there's a focus on knowledge but not on wisdom. Did you hear the Old Testament lesson this morning? Did you hear what Isaiah said? He said, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you are hewn. Remember your origins. Look to Abraham, your father. Give attention, my people. Give ear to me. Lift up your eyes. Listen to me. I'm not going to tell you anything you don't know. We live in a world that is sometimes antagonistic to faith. We live in a world that is sometimes antagonistic to God. Oh, you know, and you mess with my faith and I'm coming after you, right? I told you I grew up in the city. You know, this is what we're going to do. We're going to fight. That's not our biggest problem. A world that's antagonistic to religion is not our biggest problem. A world that is apathetic to God 
is a far bigger problem. It's not just that our world is, is antagonistic, it's apathetic. I'll tell you what, give me a strident atheist over a nominal Christian any day. Because a strident atheist is at least thinking, working, calculating. Some nominal Christian who just simply says, well, of course I am, I mean, I grew up in this family, you know. I'm Irish, so of course, or, you know, I'm English, of course, you know, this is the way I am. We need people who are dedicated to being transformed. Did you hear Paul? What Paul says in in Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Suskematizatha, from schematic. Do not follow this world's schematic. Paul says schematic is a drawing. (laughs) Don't follow this world's schematic for living, but rather be metamorphosized. This is the word he uses. This is the caterpillar into a butterfly word. Be metamorphosized. Be transformed. And notice that's passive. No transforming yourself. No changing yourself. No, I could do better than this. It's not about what we do to ourselves. It's about allowing ourselves to be transformed by God. Be transformed. J.B. Phillips, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Better even. I well, Maybe not better, but different and good. <laughs> Eugene Peterson in the message, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Oh my goodness, that's good, isn't it? Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without thinking. And so here we are. The beginning of a new academic year. Everyone in the Boisel household is off to school. Zach left this morning. Gave him a hug and a kiss. See you later. You know, he'll contact me, especially when it's money. Um, the, the, they're off to school. And in your houses, they're off to school. Kids and grandkids. I know Cardosis took Nick over to Pittsburgh. Colette, is she going? No, I don't see. Yeah, is she going? Yeah. So, off to school. Everybody's off. High schoolers are back to high school. Great schoolers. Maybe if they're not, they're about to be there. And not just here in Hudson, right? All over the country. Everybody's returning to school. And some of you can't remember the last time you sat in the classroom. Whoo, it was a long time ago. Let me tell you what, you've been learning. Your teachers, in that box that you turn on, on the wall, or in the den, that little head that has an opinion on everything and tells you what to think about it all. Your teachers, your textbooks, the newspapers, the magazines, the publications that you read. And some of it's really good, and you learn a lot, and that's helpful. But the question isn't whether or not we're obtaining knowledge but whether or not we're building that knowledge into wisdom. Here's my question to us this morning. Are we so being shaped by the philosophies of our our world that we think just like it and we fit nice and snug into our culture? Or have we begun to develop wisdom so that we can counter our culture with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.